Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best lean not on our own understanding in all our ways acknowledge him and expect that he will direct our paths so grab your bible prepare your hearts and minds hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the holy spirit and then join me as we open up the treasures of god's word We are in the midst of what I call an accidental series. Some time ago, I sat down to write a message that I thought would complement a communion celebration. As you know, we go to the table of the Lord with regularity around here. And when we do, we teach on a relevant issue from Scripture, of course, before we partake of the elements. In so doing, I feel it helps us to discern the Lord's body as we're commanded to do when we celebrate this most wonderful sacrament. I had set out to talk about the atonement, and as I love to do, I decided to begin the lesson with a little look into the Word itself. Now that little decision, that little side road, has taken months to unwind. We are now in part three, and I'm not sure how many parts lie ahead, but if I had to guess, I would say only two more, this one and the next. But God is in charge, and he'll decide how much more we talk about here. Now, if you're just joining us, you may be wondering, why has it taken so far almost three hours of teaching with maybe as much still in front of us to discuss this ancient English word so well-known in both spiritual and secular conversations. We know what the word means. Heck, there's even a movie with just this word alone in the title. And as it turns out, the title is all we need in order to figure out what's going to happen. It's as descriptive as any plot summary. That's just how familiar we are when it comes to what atonement means. So why are we spending so much time on it? Just define the word and get on with the teaching. Now, those that have been with us for the past couple of weeks know it's not that simple. And you know, all the while, just off stage is a mysterious visage. We know it's a person, but he's set way back, and we can't quite make him out. He's distant, but somehow still so important. It's William Tyndall. Now, his name is not as well known as some of the other reformers. He's no Luther. He's no Calvin. There are no isms associated with his name, but he's no less important. Those that have taken the time to study his life tell us that his impact on Christianity, especially the Reformation, is profound and still felt to this day. And listen, 
He was active. He did what he did at a time when religion and society were so intertwined that as one moved, so did the other. Now today, church influence extends no further than the doors of the sanctuary. In modern times, our concerns for spiritual matters are scheduled, and usually for no more than an hour or two on Sundays and Wednesdays. Not so in Tyndall's time. You see, by the 16th century, God and Jesus and the saints and Mary and heaven and health were topics on everyone's mind and had been for one and a half millennia. When something radical happened in the church, it was felt in the home and in the shop and in the field and everywhere in between. When Tyndall gifted the English people with the Bible in their own language, it sent shockwaves through England, and that eventually helped change the whole world. You see, after the arrival of the Bible in their native language, everyone who could read did. Those who couldn't read it asked someone to read it to them. Christianity had become the religion of the people as it was intended to be. Before that, it was the religion of the church. Christianity was slowly going from terrifying to comforting, from demanding to providing, from damning to saving. Now, we must remember Christianity and politics were inextricably knotted together in the 16th century and frankly had been for nearly a thousand years. Not even the production of an English language Bible was immune. Though initially an ardent supporter of the church and an ardent enemy of Martin Luther, whom he called one little monk weak in strength, King Henry VIII soon saw the existence of a decidedly un-Roman Bible as an opportunity. He thought having a copy of Scripture independent of the approval and therefore the power of the mighty Catholic Church might mean that neither he nor his subjects actually needed the additional baggage of a foreign church meddling in the pursuit of personal attainments and pleasures. By 1539, only three years after Tyndall was executed for just producing an English Bible, the so-called Great Bible was not only published, but given the distinction of being the first official English language Bible as authorized by Henry himself. Of course, scholars unanimously agree that the Great Bible, this newly authorized Bible, was largely a repacking of Tyndall's work. Tyndall's work having been about 15 years older. It was, the Great Bible was, 
basically Tyndall's Bible, but not without some significant changes. Listen to this. William Tyndall, in his translation work, in the New Testament that he had put together, had the nasty habit of including explanatory notes throughout his work. He had put those in intending to help the common believer gain an even better understanding of Scripture as they read it. Well, seen as a threat to their authority, the English bishops insisted that these pesky little editions were not to be brought over to the Great Bible, and Henry, knowing that he must keep those bishops happy if he is going to be at all successful, agreed to the omissions. And so the Great Bible was produced without explanations. And as an interesting and related side note, as well as a clue that the king wasn't maybe fully ready to grant too much religious liberty, the Great Bible was also known as the Chained Bible, since each copy was ordered to be securely tethered in a designated spot in a church to prevent the great unwashed from removing it to their home to review it at their leisure and at their own pace. However, the appetite for all things biblical soon became overwhelming and a rapid succession of English-language Bibles were produced and used in the now-independent English church. Under the leadership of Henry and his son Edward, though briefly punctuated during the reign of his daughter Mary, Protestantism took hold in England. By the latter half of the 16th century, almost a century and a half after Tyndall's work, the Geneva Bible, the Bible of the Puritan movement, arrived, and it had become wildly popular. Like the great Bible that preceded it, the Geneva Bible was largely based on Tyndall's translation. By the time of Shakespeare... William Tyndall's English, now so firmly entrenched because of the ubiquity of Bibles, was being used in nearly every home in England. It was on their minds and in their prayers. They preached and praised and sang using Tyndallian words and phrases. They were now saying things that they first discovered in his Bibles, but had now made their way into everyday conversation. When they discussed being brokenhearted over the loss of a loved one, that was his word. When they identified themselves as a fisherman, they used his word. When they complained to their buddies about their mother-in-law, they had to borrow that term from Tyndall. You know, literary scholars like to say that the Geneva Bible was the Bible of Shakespeare. Well, who do you think gave it to him? In fact, one prominent historian has coined the phrase, no Tyndall, no Shakespeare. Now, why am I 
once again going through this academic and perhaps tedious exposition? Well, to be honest, because it reminds me that there was once a time when the Bible meant something. There was a time when the Bible was influential in the lives of men and women, so much so that it actually shaped their very culture. Studying the life and words of William Tyndall has reminded me that the Bible is important. What it says matters, and what it says is worth dying for. Perhaps remind is not the right word. It is important to me. But I also see that without the word of God, we'll hurdle our way to destruction. Even though we go to church every day. The people of Tyndall's time went to church every single day. And a, even a cursory view of the typical lives, especially of the aristocracy, the sinful lives is shocking. It's because they didn't know their scripture. Yes, they said they were Christian. Yes, they went to church. Yes, they took what they called the Mass every day. And yet, their lives were full of sin. At the moment, as we said in the beginning, our series is slowly turning toward discovering the definition of the word atonement. Now, you and I have a, a pretty good understanding of this word, but is it the same definition as Tyndall intended? Well, frankly, I think you'll agree with me so far. The answer is a resounding no. So let's keep hunting. The Oxford Dictionary gives us the etymology of this word, and by that, we mean the venerable shrine to all things English language tells us that the original meaning, and by that, of course, is meant the meaning that William Tyndall assumed, was best described by splitting the word into individual components. At one mint, if pronounced that way, supposedly unlocks the mystery properly pronounced, it's atonement. But if we say at one mint, we can see, and the Oxford Dictionary confirms that at one mint, or more properly atonement, means unity. Therefore, according to this, every time the word appears in the Bible, it is referring to some sort of unity or unifying action. And so far, We've been unsuccessful in determining why this meaning has been attached to the word. You see, most of the time when we see the word atonement in the English language Old Testament, it's translating some form of the Hebrew verb kafar. So here's where we left off last time, Exodus 25, 17. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. 
two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. So do you notice that term mercy seat there? If you're a regular Bible-loving, Bible-studying believer, that word is quite well known to you. And if you're not, and it's okay if you're not, as long as you don't stay that way, but if you are new to the Bible, that term has got to seem like a very unusual one. In fact, it is a very unusual word. It's an invented word. And if you haven't already guessed, the word inventor is none other than William Tyndall. William Tyndall invented the word or the phrase of the term mercy seat. However, unlike atonement, the provenance of the term mercy seat leads directly to William Tyndall. In other words, there's still some debate as to whether Tyndall invented atonement, but there is no doubt that he invented the term mercy seat. Now, can I say with all due respect and reverence that I don't like this word either? I don't like atonement and I don't like mercy seat. I believe both are rather confusing, but especially mercy seat. I've said in previous lessons that address this object, not just atonement, but in other lessons, that I have no idea why it is still called this in the English, why it still appears in the modern English translation as a translation of the Hebrew verb kafar, because the original word that gets that is present in Exodus that gets translated into the English word mercy seat is kapareth and kapareth means a lid or more accurately a cover and this kapareth this cover this lid sits atop one of the most fascinating objects ever described in the Bible. It is magnificent and wonderful and glorious, and it's all of those things because it's a type of Christ, as is, by the way, the Kaporith, the mercy seat. So let's read a moment. We're starting at Exodus 25, verse 10. Exodus 25, verse 10. And they shall make an ark of shittim wood, Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shall make upon it a crown of gold round about. And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof, and two rings shall be in the one side of it, and two rings in the other side of it. And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be borne with them. Verse 15, The staves shall be in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. Now those, those that I just read, Exodus 25, verse 10 through Exodus 25, verse 16. Those are the instructions for the ark. 
And then God told Moses, And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. Now, this is one of the most famous objects in the world. Now, I really wish that it was so famous because so many people read the Bible, but the truth is the Ark of the Covenant is so famous because, and I really don't want to say thanks to Hollywood, but I fear I must. Thanks to Hollywood, everyone knows what the Ark of the Covenant is. And I will admit that they did do a pretty good job of reproducing the Ark. Of course, you know I mean the movie The Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mr. Spielberg, the director of the movie, was very faithful in the reproduction of the Ark, this most holy of the tabernacle objects. If you see it on screen, it's a pretty good job. He seemed to have followed along with the biblical description. And that's probably why most of you recognize or at least can visualize the biblical description of the ark. Now let's keep reading and to keep the context, we'll reread verse 17 and then include the rest of the description. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold of beaten work. Shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat, and make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub on the other. Even of the mercy seat shall ye make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. Now, if you are new to this program, then you may not know that we have on several occasions taught on the magnificent tabernacle in the wilderness. It is one of the topics we believe define this ministry. It is one of the things I believe we are most known for. And the tabernacle in the wilderness is really one of the most famous, the most fascinating of all biblical topics. Now, in our previous discussions, we attempted to prove to you from Scripture that the entire tabernacle complex speaks of Christ. It speaks of His person and His work. The tabernacle in the wilderness is the story of the gospel. Now, what makes that so fascinating is that most of the story, most, not all, but most of the story of the tabernacle is found in the Old Testament. And yet it speaks of Christ. That surprises some people. Not you, of course. You're well taught. It's in the book of Exodus that we are introduced to the tabernacle in the wilderness. It is there that we find the record of God giving the instructions on the building of this beautiful project to Moses some of which we just read. We read some of those instructions just a moment ago. Well, in our previous lessons on the tabernacle, 
we went through a very thorough, very painstaking examination of the details as given to us in the Bible. That is by no means a small task because those details are scattered over 50 chapters in both the Old and the New Testament. Now, I'm sure that to some of you, that sounds rather tedious, rather monotonous, and at times it can be. But there is no other way to fully understand it all. You see, Jesus is found in all those details. And if we want to get to know him better, if we want to get to know what he's done and what he will yet do, we must examine those details. In order to put the entirety of the story together, we must look at all the details. Now, I went through that little general outline to tell you this. Today, we won't be going through 50 chapters of information. And I'm sure not a few of you are really wiping your brow and saying, no, thank God. But as relieved as you may be, it does not make my task any better. Now, the first thing I have to do is show you that the ark and the mercy seat represent Christ. Now, why, you say? Well, because the ark and the mercy seat are intimately related to the Day of Atonement. And in this series, we're trying to figure out what atonement means. And we've been doing so for the past few weeks. And there's no better way to show you what atonement means than describing the work and the person of the atonement. If I want to describe to you what atonement is, then I'm going to tell you what Christ is, because Christ is the atonement. I shall endeavor to try. Exodus 25.10, And they shall make an ark of shittim wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shall make upon it a crown of gold round about. That is the description of the ark. And my immediate task is to convince you that the ark is Christ. And you know what? Overall, my most difficult task in my job is to try to just just describe to you Jesus. Now, it's not that I don't have plenty of information on which to base that description. It's just that he's nothing like anyone has ever been. So, some of the things I have to say when I'm trying to describe Jesus sound like fantasy. Sound like a made-up story. And when I have tried to do this, especially one-on-one, when I've tried to describe Jesus, I've run into very substantial obstacles. You see, the problem is 
We think we're too advanced to believe in such nonsense. We think we've come too far to buy into all that God stuff. Some younger preachers may be bemoan the fact that they can't get through to the modern intellect. And the temptation is to think it was a lot easier for Peter and Paul in their day than it is today. Not so. Almost Almost as soon as the gospel started making its way into the world outside of Jerusalem, problems started coming up. If you're even the least bit familiar with the gospel of John, then you'll know that it was written in large part to dispel some of the heresies that began circulating within the first few decades after our Lord's death. A heresy is a, is a theory a religious theory not based on the facts of Scripture. And a lot of heresies were prevalent at the time that John wrote his gospel, probably around the turning into the second century, probably 99 or 100 or 101. The year, I mean. The Apostle John wrote his gospel to set the record straight, as it were. You see, we think that those early evangel evangelization efforts were to these primitive barbarians who were so ignorant, especially compared to us, that they would believe anything. That those early apostles, the early church, had it easy as they were trying to spread the gospel. Everyone was so dumb, they would just believe anything, unlike us today. We're too smart. They're barely evolved brains were easily duped by the claims of the Bible. Not so. The people then thought they knew it all, just like we do, and they felt they were too smart to believe such things as the existence of a man-god. Yes, they'd heard of such things as demigods, but that isn't what they were told Jesus was. Those early evangelists were claiming that Jesus was God and Jesus was man. And some of those who heard this didn't believe it. And thou shalt make an ark of shittim wood and overlay it with pure gold. How could that be? Didn't make sense. The same problem we have today. By the way, just as a side note, I believe that there's actually one big difference between what today's preachers of Christ have to face that they didn't have to face in those first 100 years since the Christ's earthly ministry ended. Today, my first battle is convincing you that Jesus actually existed. And I have to do that before I can tell you anything else. It's my opinion that the news of the life of this man, Jesus, had probably already reached most of the places that those early apostles first went to. I believe Jesus' earthly reputation preceded him. And that was part of the problem. 
You see, all of the far-out heresies of those first couple of centuries arose, I believe, because people were trying to make sense of the person they knew existed, and they heard did all these otherworldly things. Well, the apostles were saying, no, no, he did those things because he was a God-man, man-God. Nah, couldn't be. He had to be this, that, or the other. I wish we had more time to get into this. There are really some freaky and well creative, I have to say, heretical theories floating about in those days in, in an attempt to explain what they had heard. Maybe we'll have a special program dedicated that to that stuff sometime in the future, but for now, we have to move on. And they shall make an ark of shittim wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shall make upon it a crown of gold round about. The ark was a wooden box with gold overlaid. There's never been anyone like Jesus. That's why it's so tough to describe him. Well, a good starting point is Exodus 25, 10 and 11. And they shall make an ark of shittim wood, and thou shalt overlay it with pure gold. Within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. That's a pretty good description. Now, the first clue that this is Jesus is found in the fact that, listen to me, the Ark of the Covenant is described first. It is the very first item of the tabernacle that is described. Jesus is the very head of the church, and his place is out front. And they shall make an Ark of Shittim wood. Now, just in case you're curious, ark is actually a borrowed word from the Latin arca, which means a box or a chest. But why a, why a box? Well, boxes contain stuff. Otherwise, it's a block. This wasn't a block. It was a box. It had an inside and an outside. Now, usually the things that are placed inside a box are important and are meant to, to be kept forever. The original Hebrew word is zachron, and it means precisely the same thing, a box. God wanted a box built so he could, listen to me, so he could have certain things put in it. Things are put in a box. God commissioned a box so certain things could be put in it. Romans 3.24 Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.30, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 2 Corinthians 2.14, Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ. Now this one is a good one. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. 2 Timothy 1.9, Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus. I, I literally could go on another 10 minutes, but I think you get the point. And they shall make an ark, a box of shittim wood. The box that stuff went in was made out of what the Bible calls shittim wood. Now, this is another one of the places in the Bible that the scholars are so sure about, but without any evidence. You see, no one really knows what God was referring to when he said, and they shall make a box of shittim wood. Now, most of you regulars know that what the King James calls shittim wood, we have been told is actually acacia wood. In fact, the revised version of the Bible, and by the way, it's the revised version because it was a revision of the King James. It became the official Bible of the English church after the King James. The King James was the official Bible of the church under King James, and then afterwards was the revised version. It had some revisions to it, and it became the official church Bible, the English church Bible. Well, it was in the revised version where the word acacia first showed up instead of shittim. Actually, now most Modern versions of the English Bible say it is acacia wood and not shittim. Okay, John, let me guess. You disagree with the use of the word acacia. Well, sort of. I mainly disagree because it appears to be a guess. You see, no one knows for sure what shittim wood is. So, the scholars had to look around to see what would make sense. Listen to me. They approached the topic, it would appear, on assumptions. Here are a few of them. Number one, whatever this wood is, it has to be durable. This was a box that was packed and unpacked. Nobody knows how many times over a 40-year period out in the desert. Secondly, scholars know this box lasted for hundreds of years, possibly thousands. Thirdly, this was the desert. 
there were only a few species of trees available to build things with, so the list is short. Acacia's on the list, but Shittim isn't. Doesn't mean it didn't grow there. We just have no record of it. Acacia trees we know about. They grew in the desert. They were durable. Acacia fits the assumptions. But I believe that I'm not exaggerating when I say they didn't know. The scholars didn't know, so they guessed. Now again, you may be saying, so what? Well, maybe nothing. I may be making something out of this that's really nothing. But let me share with you. The original Hebrew word is shatim, which means sticks of wood. But interestingly, shatim, listen to me, is related to the Hebrew word shotet, which means, listen to me, to pierce, to flog, to scourge. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53, 5. Did the scholars rob us of some meaning? There isn't enough evidence to say for sure. Do I think Acacia is wrong? Perhaps. But there's no way of knowing. I think it's a good guess. It is a tree that's known to have grown in that region at that time. It would be like God to have his project made with materials that were readily available. But again, we don't know for sure if this Shittim would also grew there. Just because it doesn't now doesn't mean it didn't at one time. Lots and lots of species have come and gone, and we never knew they were there. And listen, I'm not trying to be a pot stirrer. Once again, I just want to make sure we are taking all of this seriously. But John, aren't you questioning the accuracy of the Bible? Not at all. I'm questioning the translation. In fact, I'm honoring the original. I'm suggesting we stick with the original because the original says it was Shittim wood. It wasn't until the revised version that the word acacia even showed up. Now, the problem is we don't know what Shittim wood is, but I would say that Whatever shittim wood actually is, it must be an awful lot like acacia wood because the qualities of the acacia tree make it perfect both practically and symbolically. I mean, acacia wood, we are told, is, as you know, a very durable, long-lasting wood. We've said that. And this seemingly imperishable, incorruptible wood makes it not only the perfect building material for a desert-exposed structure, but it also clearly speaks of our Lord's 
perfect humanity and indestructible manhood. The wood does speak of his humanness. The durability and imperishability of the wood speaks even louder of Christ. Acts 2.27, Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Wood speaks of humanity. Indestructible wood speaks of Christ. In addition, it's said that acacia is a supposedly a particularly ugly tree with gnarled and knotty trunks and thorny branches, not something you would want a family portrait underneath. Also, interestingly, we're told it grows very sparsely in that desert region that surrounded the children of Israel during their wanderings for 40 years. It's particularly ugly. And it grew very sparsely in the desert. Listen how listen to how the prophet Isaiah described the Messiah. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root. This is a description, according to Isaiah fifty three five. A prophetic description of the Messiah. The Messiah is Christ. Is he describing acacia wood? Is he describing shittim wood? I don't know. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of a dry ground. Sounds like a desert. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Again, shittim wood must be an awful lot like acacia wood. So this box is made of a very durable, strong, desert-growing, but not much to look at tree, either shittim or acacia. In my heart, I'm going with shittim. But there's more. There's more to the description of the ark, okay? It's made out of a very durable shittim wood or acacia wood that's rather unattractive, but very durable, long-lasting. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold. Within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shall make upon it a crown of gold round about. You know, there are some who want Jesus to just be a man. I mean, he's easier to ignore that way. And then there are those who want Jesus to, to be just God. He's easier to follow that way. Well, God doesn't do things to please us. He only achieves his will. Thank God. And the only way Jesus, to, Jesus could fully accomplish all he came to accomplish is accomplishing right now and will continue to accomplish is he has to be the only way to achieve God's will, he has to be fully God and fully man. The ark was a wooden box overlaid with gold. 
in and out, by the way. Why? Why was the Ark a wooden, durable box overlaid inside and out with pure gold? Why? Haven't I told you that when we get this sort of detail that there's meaning in it? That there's something beyond the details? God is telling you a story and he's giving you a clue, a very loud clue, as to who this story is about. The wood represents Christ's humanity and the gold represents his divinity, fully God and fully man. No one, no one has ever had those traits except Jesus. Fully God, fully man. Wooden box overlaid with gold, pure gold. Humanity wrapped in divinity. And they don't mingle. He's fully God. He's fully man. Fully wood overlaid with gold. I'm sorry. This is once again proving to be... I'm not really sorry. But this is once again proving to be a lengthy lesson. Because we're attempting to describe someone that's like no one else. We're attempting to describe an eternal being who took on mortality. A God who was also a man. Not a demigod. A demigod is half God, half man. Or a portion God and a portion man. He is all God and he is all man. And had to be. In order to accomplish God's will for us, he had to be Wood overlaid with gold. A God who became a man, made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant. So this is no small task we've embarked on. And this is why these lessons go long. We're 52 minutes in now. I'll keep moving. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold within and without, shalt thou overlay it, and shalt make upon it a crown of gold, a crown of gold round about. And shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. There was a golden crown all the way around. That's how it's described. A crown of gold all the way around that ark. Now, if there's one thing that you should know about the tabernacle, and frankly, everything in God's Word, is that there is no mention of vain adornment. Nothing is in God's Word simply for beautification purposes. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't love and produce beauty. He certainly does. All you need to do is take one look at my wife to know that. But when it comes to his plan, it's all business. So then, why the golden crown roundabout? 
Revelation 19.11 is also describing Christ. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Verse 12, his eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he hath on his vesture and on his thighs a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What's the purpose of the golden crown roundabout? Roundabout? God will not let you forget who His Son really is. There can be no doubt that this ark is Jesus. But maybe you're not convinced. All right? There's more. Now, you know, God doesn't always do this. But here he decides not to leave any room for doubt. I mean, most of the time, God puts just enough into the details to the point that we're sort of forced to fill in the gaps with trust. Not no time to demonstrate, but God's Word makes clear that trust is important. But I think we can see here that this ark is more important because God isn't going to take any chances for you to misidentify who this ark is. He uncharacteristically gives us more details. Now, no one commissions a box without specifying what's going to go in it, right? And of course, God is no exception. But God didn't put things in this box to store them. The items placed in this box were there as a part of the story. And the best place to get the info as to what was in the ark is the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 4. Now we're picking up where the author is speaking about what was to be found in the Holy of Holies the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid round about with gold. We know he's talking about the Ark. He goes on to say, Wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. According to Hebrews 9.4, there were three things in this box. Number one, a golden pot of manna. Number two, Aaron's rod that budded. Number three, the tables. We might call them tablets, the stone tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. All three of these items 
contained in this box, I tell you, prove this is Christ. Now, we don't have a lot of time left, so I'm only going to briefly mention the first two because it's it's really the third that pertains to this lesson. The lesson being the subject of which is the mercy seat. Remember that? We're supposed to be talking about the mercy seat. Don't worry, we'll get there. So once again, three items placed in the Ark of the Covenant for the sole purpose of identifying the Ark. If the police found you passed out from too much alcohol intake, perhaps, and they wanted to know who you were so they could find someone to call to pick you up and take you home, wouldn't they dig through your pockets? Because whatever is contained therein is most certainly going to identify you and only you. Like fingerprints, no two sets of pants pockets are the same. You are what you carry. In the ark, there was a golden pot of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, the tables or stone tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Number one, a golden pot of manna. The manna that came down from heaven is universally known to prefigure the person, life, and work of Christ. We've talked about it on this program before. First of all, in the desert, that was all the Israelites had to sustain them. Once their food ran out, took about a month, once their food ran out, when they exited Egypt, they took about a month's worth of food. After about a month, they ran out of food and they had nothing else. What does God do? He rains manna down from heaven. It was all they had to sustain them. Everything that they had in their previous life was exhausted. Now all they had was God's provision. Listen, God knew where he was leading them. The desertness of the desert did not surprise God at all. He knew all along how he was going to provide for them. Philippians 4.19, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Everything we need comes according, that is, by or through or charged to the riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Like that manna for the Israelites, we find our provision only in him. And that's why the manna was in that box. Nothing else exists that will do for us what he will. Everything else, everything else leads to death. Listen, contrary to popular belief, the desert is not lifeless. There are lots of things growing and living and moving in the desert, but almost all of it 
is either inedible to humans or downright poisonous. When we rely on our surroundings to sustain us, when we count on the world to keep us satisfied, well, that only leads to deprivation and destruction. Christ is our sustenance, our provision, our bounty, and that's why the golden pot of manna was placed in the ark to identify him. There's so much more, but that's sufficient for now. Next, Aaron's rod that budded. You know the story. There was a little mini-revolt among the tribes of Israel. For centuries, the head of each of the tribes served as the priest for that tribe. Then along comes Moses, who tells them that Aaron's going to be, he's going to take on the newly formed position of high priest. In other words, chief priest, boss of the priests, the final authority with God. And oh, by the way, that was God's idea. Well, of course, no one likes when someone takes over their job. The heads of the tribes challenge Aaron. They challenge his authority. And while they're at it, they decide to challenge Moses' authority too. Of course, God heard their complaints and decided to show them who he favored. Now, in those days, the head of each tribe carried a stick that served as a symbol of authority. God told Moses to gather up all those sticks. The Bible calls them rods. They were the forerunner of the kingly scepter. God told Moses to get the rod from each from the head of each of the tribes, and then to place them all, 12 in total, in the tabernacle and then leave them overnight. Now, Aaron was not the head of any of the tribes, but God told Moses to write Aaron's name on the rod for the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe. Now, this was done to show that Aaron was now supreme over the priestly caste, over the priestly tribe of Levi. So all of these 12 rods were gathered, and then they were placed in the tabernacle overnight as God directed. In the morning, the rods were retrieved, and miraculously, Aaron's rod, the one that God gave to Aaron, was now budding. It was bursting with life. Little blossoms had now grown on that stick. Now, there is an immense amount of symbolism in this true story, but we're going to discuss only one. There's only one way to get a stick off the tree, and that's to kill the stick. That stick was once just a dead branch cut off from its life-giving source and God specifically and exclusively gave that stick new life. That stick, which was once dead, was now alive. Now, I hardly tell, need to tell you this, but of course, this is a shadow of the resurrection, and that's why it was in the ark. 
God raised Christ from the dead, and he previewed that glorious event through Aaron's rod that budded and had that rod put in the ark. The rod that budded, the symbol of Christ's resurrection, was placed in the Ark of the Covenant as a piece of ID. Now, I'm not being in the least disrespectful. I'm giving you a real-world application of the truth. The, the budding rod was in the Ark so that you would know that the Ark was Christ. We're digging through his pockets to figure out who he is. We find a golden pot of manna, and we find the rod that budded. Those identified the ark as Christ. Exodus 25, 16. And thou shalt put in the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. There's hardly a man or woman in the Western world, at least, and, and at least half the Eastern, that doesn't know what the Ten Commandments are. And almost everyone could give you most of the details. You know, Moses going up to the mountain and God giving these Ten Laws that the children of Israel, and, and of course all the rest of us, are to consider what God commands for our lives. That's why they're called the Ten Commandments. Almost everyone knows that. But most people do not know that there were actually two sets of tablets that carried the Ten Commandments. Now, it's not a hidden fact, but I think most people get a little too wrapped up in the golden calf part of the story to notice that it was written. As you know, when Moses came down from the mountain, the children of Israel were worshiping an idol. It was a golden calf that they had fashioned themselves with the gold of their personal possessions, most particularly their earrings, their golden earrings. They had done this, surprisingly, through the authority of Aaron, Moses' brother. Yes, that same Aaron that God would someday appoint this high priest. He had not been high priest at, at yet, as yet. So Moses comes down off that mountain, much to the surprise of the people. They thought that since he was taking so long that he wasn't ever coming back. And then, Exodus 32, 19, as soon as he came nigh unto the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands and break them beneath the mount. Now, I know this is a really long lesson. Please hang in here with me, please. This is important. Moses loses his temper as he's done more than a few times, as recorded in the Old Testament, and he smashes the tablets with the Ten Commandments written on them. Now, make no mistake, letting your temper get the best of you is deplorably sinful. But not even, not even sin can stop God. In fact, as he has done before in his word, God will use this sin of Moses to teach us all something very vital. I earlier 
mentioned my admiration of the attention to detail in the film Raiders of the Lost Ark, but this is where they blundered a bit. Not a bit, blundered magnificently. You see, the movie claims that it was the broken tablets that were placed in the ark. Not so. Exodus 34.1, And the Lord said unto Moses, Hew thee two tables of stone like unto the first, meaning like the first set. And I will write upon these tables the words that were in the first tables which thou breakest. God replaced the broken tablets. And it was the unbroken, listen to me, the unbroken tablets that ended up in the ark. And that of which can be no doubt. Why do you say that? Why can it be undoubtedly the unbroken tablets? Well, because as I said, the contents of the ark were meant to identify who the ark is. Well, the story of the tablets is the story of sin. God gives his Ten Commandments, his standards of behavior, what he expects of mankind. He then gives that law, if you will, to man, here represented by Moses, and immediately man breaks the law. In man, the law will always be broken. However, in Christ, the law is unbroken. And that's why the unbroken tablets of the law were in the ark. The ark is Christ. There would be no way the broken law would be in Christ. Otherwise, none of us would be talking about this. The unbroken law is in Christ. Only Christ can carry unbroken fellowship with God, and that's why we know the ark is Christ. Nothing could be clearer. You know, I've said this before. I have no idea why the honest, God-loving Jews reject Christ. He's found in their story. So, what does all of this have to do with the mercy seat? All we've been doing is talking about the ark. What does this have to do with the mercy seat? Don't worry. The simplicity of this means it can only be shared without elaboration because there's nothing elaborate to share. If it takes more than five minutes to share, you're adding to the story. Inside that ark is the standard of God's expectation. Expectations. The two tablets of the law represent God's standard. And there was one time when you and I had to stand before and live up to those expectations or die. We, at one time, stood before the law exposed. This is how Job puts it. 9, chapter 9, verse 33. 
neither is there any days man betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both. A days man is an umpire. Neither is there any umpire, a mediator, a go-between between us and God. That's how Job saw that. You see, in ourselves, we stand uncovered in front of God's standard. And he can't even look at us in that state and spare us, even if he wanted to. Even if he loved us, he couldn't see us exposed to his standard and spare us. Listen. Please listen. Please, do not go directly to God. If you stand in front of God uncovered, you haven't got a chance. Don't leave this world uncovered. Don't enter the Holy of Holies uncovered. I don't care who you are. You may think you'd outdo Mother Teresa in a do-good contest or out-squeak the squeaky cleanest saint-chaste virgin. If God looks directly at you and your naked condition, He's going to find sin. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Remember this? The original Hebrew word that gets translated into the English mercy seat? The, the original Hebrew word is kaporith, and it comes from the word kafar. Kafar means to cover. Christ covers the tables of the covenant. Christ stands between me and God's standard. Christ is the mercy seat. Seat, by the way, is used in the sense of place or location. You've, you've heard of the expression seat of power. London was the seat of power for the British Empire. London was the place of power. The Caporeth is where we find mercy. It is where the mercy is. Jesus is our place of mercy. When God's standards seek sin, all it can see is Christ. The mercy seat sat over the tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments. Christ is our go-between. The mercy seat, the caporeth, the place of mercy, the Gnadenstuhl, as Luther called it, is none other than Christ and can be none other than Christ. The Kaporith, the lid. What is Kafar? It's covering. Just like, remember this, Noah's Ark was pitched within, without, with pitch for protection. So are we. Without that pitch, without that covering, without that ceiling, 
without that anointing, to use Wycliffe's words, that boat wouldn't have lasted 40 seconds, let alone 40 days worth of God's wrath in the form of the flood. God said, cover it. Kafar. God said, protect it. Put something between me, my wrath, and you. Without the covering of that mercy seat, without the Kaparith covering us over, keeping us from being exposed to God's standard, the tables of the covenant, we die. When we come before God, we now have a mercy seat, a place of mercy between God's standard and us. God can now look up and only see what covers us and forbear his wrath, hold off his wrath. He doesn't need to lay down his wrath because he sees Christ covering us, standing between us and himself. Jesus is more precious than we even know. What he's done, I'm convinced, will only be clear once we're safe in his arms looking back at what might have been. One last time, you don't want to face God uncovered. You don't want to approach God unless Jesus is standing in front of you. Because there is no other covering. There is no other seat of mercy. There is no other atonement. You can't cover yourself. Adam and Eve tried. And God didn't even notice. I'm sure they thought those fig leaves were quite clever. But those fig leaves only covered up what Adam and Eve thought it thought needed covering. Far more was exposed than what was covered. God simply ignored their attempts and mercifully provided the proper covering they needed. And to do that, he had to shed blood unto Adam also and Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. You can't make a coat of skin without first killing what the skin covered originally. From the beginning, God has told you what atonement means. It means covering. And only he can provide it. Like the covering he had to provide for Adam and Eve, trust me, God didn't want to. He had to. Just like the covering God had to provide Adam and Eve, God had to shed precious blood to cover you and me and the rest of the world. But you must realize it. And you must accept it. You're covered if you ask him. He has made a covering for you, but you have to accept it. 
I don't know why I should have to ask you, but please ask him for it. You should want it more for you than I want it for you, but none of us truly see the extent of our own nakedness at first, and none of us see the inadequacy of our own efforts to cover. Adam and Eve didn't reject those skins. They were smarter than that. They knew better. They didn't try to keep those silly little leaves. They no doubt enthusiastically accepted the covering because they knew it meant he was willing to overlook the sin they knew about. Atonement instead of wrath. That's a good deal. Don't leave this earth uncovered. Don't go another moment uncovered. Please, go to him if you haven't already. Tell him you're a sinner and tell him you know that you can't cover yourself. Only he can. Please do that. It's a simple exchange. Life or death. Put yourself in his hands. Accept his atonement. Accept his covering. And then live your life to convince others to do the same. We still have one more lesson on the atonement. Come back next week for the finale. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in his plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at timeinthechapel.com. Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.